This morning we are going to finish the story of, of Gideon. We looked at the first half of the story of Gideon last week, and the first half of Gideon's life, uh, the first pass, half of his story in the book of Judges really makes Gideon look like a pretty good guy. Uh, the people of Israel were oppressed, and God uh, finds this man named Gideon who's, who's full of doubts and confusion about where God is in his life and where God is in the people of Israel. But over a course of conversations that God and Gideon have together, uh, Gideon becomes a man of confidence and a man of faith. And with God with him, God delivers Israel from the hand of the Midianites. But as we're going to see today, very quickly, Gideon's life takes a, a tragic turn. And Gideon becomes a man of revenge and pride and spiritual compromise. And the story of Gideon is really the turning book, book turning point of the entire book of Judges. Up to this point in the book, uh, the people of Israel are often uh, backsliding and compromising and are disobedient to the law. Uh, but the judges, for the most part, are people of integrity. But from Gideon on, the leaders begin to look more and more like the rest of the people. There aren't any more judges like Deborah or Othniel or any leaders like Barak. From this point on in the story, it's not only the people of Israel, but also the leaders who pay no attention to God's law. God continues to have his plans and purposes for Israel, and he, he uses and raises up judges to, to deliver people from their oppressors. But from this point on in the story, the character of the leader is really no different from the character of the people. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this story, and we pray, God, as we hear about the story of Gideon and about his life and how it transpired and then ended. Lord, I pray that we would hear both from you a word of great challenge for us in our own lives as we consider um, our own life and the influence that we have on people around us. And Lord, that we'd also receive and hear your grace for us today. In Christ's name, amen. We are going to tell the second half of Gideon's story today in three different parts. Part one is Gideon's exhausting chase and his promises of revenge. Gideon's exhausting chase and his promises of revenge. Gideon chapter, er, Gideon, Judges chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 1 through 21. This is right on the heels of Gideon's miraculous victory over the Midianites. And this begins in Judges 8, starting at verse 1. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call on us when you went to fight Midian? And they criticized him sharply. But he answered them, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Ebiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? And at this, the resentment against him subsided. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted, once you remember that word, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread. They are exhausted, and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? 
Why should we give bread to your troops? Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with a force of about 15,000 men, all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples. 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Nobah and Jogbaha and fell upon the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing the entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle from the pass of Heres. He caught a young man of Succoth and questioned him, and the young man wrote down for him the names of 77 officials of Succoth. Remember the number 77. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Succoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give you bread to your exhausted men? And so he took the elders of the town and taught the men of Succoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. And he also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Zeba and Zalmunna, What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, Those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, Kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and he was afraid. Zeba and Zalmunna said, Come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. So after his battle with the Midianites, where God delivered them miraculously, Gideon begins to chase down the leaders of Midian. And as he's chasing the leaders of Midian, his men become completely exhausted, and they begin to stop along the way to these various tribes of Israel and to ask for their help, to ask for some bread, to ask for some water, to ask for a place to stay. And for various reasons, the tribes refuse to help. And Gideon promises that once he finishes the job, he's going to come back and have revenge on these Israelite towns for not helping them. And as the story goes, Gideon does eventually catch the Midianite kings. And Gideon gets his revenge on those leaders and also on his own people, the people of Succoth and Peniel. This story here, just on the heels of this miraculous victory over the Midianites with 300 men, I suggest to you is the very beginning of Gideon's tragic fall. There are two things that I want to note about this first part of the story. Is that first, that Gideon has stopped listening to God. In the last chapter, Gideon had a few different conversations with God, and God gave him instructions about what to do along the way. God told him about the way that he should fight this battle. God told him about what his army should look like. And even though Gideon had gathered an army of 30,000 people, he listened to God when God whittled down his army all the way down to 300 people. Gideon, that didn't make any sense, right? But Gideon was listening to God and obeying him. 
But very quickly, Gideon no longer has his ear open to God. There is no direction here from God to chase after these leaders. He just does it on his own. And because he acts without direction from God, he and his men are exhausted. God had won the victory before. And now, because they are working in their own strength, they are exhausted. I think this is the case for a lot of us. Sometimes the work we do for God becomes exhausting because we aren't actually doing the work that God has called us to do. We can be working really hard, pursuing what we think that we should do, pursuing the thing that makes sense, but we really aren't responding to the call of God in our life. We're doing just what we think we ought to do. The second thing that we see in this story is that Gideon forgets that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Deuteronomy tells us that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Revenge is not a Christian habit. Revenge is not the way of God's people. But here Gideon is filled with the spirit of vengeance. And not only to get revenge after the kings of Midian, which we might understand, but now his spirit of vengeance has turned towards his own fellow Israelites. And not only that, but then here at the end of the story, he tries to teach his son how to take revenge. In this terrible story of him handing the sword to his, his boy of a son to kill these men. We're going to see in a couple of the other stories throughout the book of Judges, in the, the life of Abimelech, and then in Samson, and then the, in the final terrible story of Judges, that the spirit of revenge continues to return among the judges in Israel, and it has terrible consequences over and over again from this point forward. Revenge is exhausting. The idea that it's up to you to make other people pay for their mistakes. That's the kind of thing that keeps us up at night. The idea that it's our responsibility to make sure to cause other people pain for the pain that they have caused us, there's no freedom in that. It is exhausting. Friends, there is another way. Part two of Gideon's story we see Gideon's worldly victory and his spiritual failure. Judges chapter 8, verses 22 through 27. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson. In other words, be a king. Set up a monarchy here. Because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you. Nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Great job, Gideon. That's exactly what you were supposed to say. And then he said, I do have one request. That each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. And they answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which was a priestly garment, which he placed in Oprah, his town. 
And all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Gideon has just had a great victory. And the people love him. He is their champion. And it's obvious that God is with him. He's done a great thing. How could God not be with him? And so they want to make him the king. And in one sentence, in this one moment in the book of Judges, everything changes. This is a fascinating conversation between Gideon and the people who want to make him king. Let me just read you a couple of the verses again. They ask him to be king, and Gideon tells them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. The Lord will be your king. And he said, but I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. What's going on here in this conversation between Gideon and the people? Is Gideon being sincere in his words, but then just kind of ignorantly acts out by asking people to come and bring their sacrifices and their offerings to him? Or is Gideon being devious here? Is he saying, you know, I I can't be your king. Kind of like a little bit hesitant and, and resistant giving them what he's supposed to say. Like, I I don't want that role and responsibility, but really in his heart, he wants to take it. Or maybe Gideon knows all the responsibility that comes with kingship, and he doesn't want the responsibility, but he wants all the benefits. That's what Sage thinks. (laughs) Gideon says, I'm not going to be your king But then he takes on the benefits of being the king. And a few verses later, he names one of his son, Abimelech. That means my father is the king. Now, we don't know all of the inner motivations that's going on with Gideon here. Sage might, but I'm not so sure. But what is clear, whatever it is that's motivating him to say this one thing and then to do another, what's very clear is that Gideon is acting with a divided heart. He's no longer listening to God in his word, and he is no longer in step with God's plans and purposes for him, and he acts with a divided heart, and his divided heart causes the people to live and to worship with a divided heart too. And I think with this one sentence, this one sentence, Gideon changes the entire trajectory of the entire book of Judges. In the book of Joshua, after the people would have a great victory, they would often build a stone altar um, to worship God there in that place. They would have a victory and they, they would build up stones so that anyone who passed by would remember God's victory in that place. But that's not what Gideon does here. And so I think that this story of Gideon is the turning point of the whole book. This one conversation this one sentence where Gideon makes a choice to not honor God for the victory, but to receive the praise and offerings of others. Gideon pays God lip service. He acts like he's being humble. I'm not going to be your king. God is your king. But I want you to treat me like a king and bring me your plunder. And then rather than making an altar to God, a memorial to God for the victory that God gave to them, God takes the gold from the plunder and he makes this ephod, this this priestly garment. 
So I want to suggest to you here that Gideon is asking people not only to treat him like a king, but also to treat him like a priest. Gideon is stepping way out of bounds here. He makes his own house the place of worship. This ephod becomes an idol for the people of Israel. It becomes a snare to Israel and to Gideon and to his house. And it's no wonder. The people who bring these offerings to Gideon, this gold, that gold was won through their own blood and sweat and the risk of their own life. They risked their lives to win that plunder. And now this ephod then becomes a memorial not to God's victory, but to their own. And Jesus tells us that wherever our treasure is, there our heart is going to be also. And so Gideon led these men to give their treasure not to God, but to him. And he makes this object then an idol. And it becomes an idol where the men offered their treasure. And because they offered their treasure there, that's where their heart was too. Gideon was called to be a leader in Israel. That's very clear, but he grasps on too much. The victory very quickly has gone to his head. He takes on the benefits of being king. Now he takes on the responsibilities of being some sort of priest or spiritual leader, and he makes his own house a house of worship. Gideon's heart was divided, and it led him to half-hearted worship, and it led the people that he was leading to half-hearted worship and then idolatry. There is another way. Part three of the story is Gideon's long and happy life and his tragic legacy. Judges 8, verses 28 through 35. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise, and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace for 40 years. Jerubbabel, son of Joash, that is Gideon, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech, that is, my father is king. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Oprah of the Abizarites. No sooner had Gideon died then the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. And they also failed to show kindness to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, for all the good things he had done for them. These verses paint a picture of the last years of Gideon's life, and it looks like success. He gets to go back home. He's got lots of wives, lots of kids, lots of wealth. He was a picture of success in that day. But we're, what we're really reading is we're reading that this long and happy life that he lived was actually a tragedy. That he himself had not grown closer to the knowledge of God, did not lead his family or the people of Israel closer to God. He accomplished great things. He even accomplished great things for God. He's won the honor of people. He's accumulated wealth. He's rich. But it doesn't seem like he's grown to know and love God. And he certainly hasn't led other people to grow to love 
and know God either. We've also seen that the way he's raising his family, he's raising his son to be a person of vengeance. He's got another son named Abimelech, who's a real piece of work, and we'll see about him next week. And no sooner that Gideon died, that the people returned to idol worship. They quickly turned from God after Gideon's death. Gideon began the story not knowing God, and he ended, it seems to me, not knowing and worshiping God. His leadership began with the people confused and unsure of where God was in all of this situation that Israel was going through, and his life ends with the people in confusion. He brought them the peace that the world gives. He brought them the peace that the world gives, but he did not bring about shalom. He did not bring the peace that comes through real reconciliation with God and their enemies. There is another way. Early on in the Bible, very early, there's a particular way of life, a pattern that is set for us by a man named Cain. Do you remember Cain in Genesis chapter 4? Cain and his brother Abel brought sacrifices to God, and God rejected the sacrifice of Cain, but accepted the sacrifice of his brother Abel. Genesis 4 suggested Abel brought God his very best, but, God, but Cain brought kind of whatever he could find. He brought some of the parts of his produce, but Abel brought the very best. And so God accepts Abel's sacrifice. Cain becomes jealous and angry of his brother, and God talks to God, talks to Cain about his anger. He tells Cain that if he offers the right kind of sacrifice, then his worship, his sacrifice will be accepted. But if not, that he needs to be careful because sin is crouching at his door and it wants to have its way with you. Literally, Cain, sin is crouching at your tent flaps. It's not quite as secure as a door, is it? Sin is crouching at your tent flaps and it's hungry for you. But Cain pays no attention to God's warning, and he takes out his anger on his brother Abel, murdering him out in the field. God spares Cain's life, but he does punish him, and Cain begins to become a wanderer throughout the world. He, he builds some cities, and as Genesis carries on, we hear about Cain's legacy, his own legacy of his own descendants. And we come to a man named Lamech, one of Cain's great-great-great-great-grandsons. We get to Lamech, and Lamech is a really bad guy. First of all, Lamech decides that one woman isn't enough for him, so he marries two. It's the first time in the Bible that we see that. Then he kills a young man. The Hebrew word suggests that this was really just a youth or a boy that he killed, maybe a boy around 13 or 14. And Lamech, Lamech is so proud about it that he writes a song about killing this boy. It's a pretty weird guy. This is what the song says. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. At this point, the line of Cain ends. There's no more discussion of Cain's descendants. Cain's legacy ends with the word of anger and pride and revenge. 
And I think the message of the author of Genesis, what he wants to communicate, is that the way of Cain leads to destruction. It's a dead end. It's not the way of love. It's not the way that God wanted human beings to live. There is another way. The Bible tells us that there is the way of Cain, and there is the way of Jesus. In the second half of his life, Gideon follows the pattern, the way of Cain. He is a man who pays no attention to the sin that is crouching at his door. He stops listening to God, and his anger leads to murder. Gideon takes on a spirit of revenge, like Cain's great-grandson Lamech, who promised that if anyone did something wrong to him, that he will take revenge 77 times. Gideon finds a city with 77 leaders and extracts his revenge on those leaders 77 times. Cain offered half-hearted, divided worship to God in the same way that Cain did. Cain was a divided man, and like Cain, Gideon leaves a legacy to his descendants where there is no joy or peace and no relationship with God. There is another way. It is the way of Jesus. And it is the way of forgiveness that leads to peace, the way of worship that leads to freedom, and the way of life that leads to life. The way of forgiveness that leads to peace. One day Peter came to Jesus and said, Jesus, how often should I forgive my brother who sins against me? Should I forgive him up to seven times? Jesus responds, no. How many times? 77 times. This number 77 is not an accident. Jesus reverses the way of Cain and the way of Lamech and the way of Gideon. Jesus says that your response to those who do wrong to you is to repay them back the revenge that they gave to you and to continue to forgive them 77 times. Unlike Cain, unlike Lamech, unlike Gideon. The way of Cain and Lamech and Gideon really is exhausting. When we carry around unforgiveness, it breeds bitterness in us. It leads for the desire for revenge. And it's a cycle that human beings continue to live out over and over and over and over and over again. And it is exhausting. It's a burden that's too heavy for us to carry. That is why it's true that vengeance is the Lord's. It's not ours. When we have unforgiveness in our heart, anger in our heart, that is when sin is crouching at our tent flaps and it is hungry for us. So Jesus offers to us the way of forgiveness. It's the way of forgiveness that leads to real peace. Now, the way of forgiveness is not ignoring the sin and wrong of other people. It's not ignoring or pretending that what the other person did to you is okay or that it's no big deal. Forgiving other people is not weakness. It's actually the opposite of that. This forgiving 77 times does not mean that you have to take abuse, that you have to become some sort of doormat, or that you have to ignore when someone has done something wrong to you, or that you have to remain in an unsafe relationship with somebody who wrongs wrongs you. The scriptures are clear that there are appropriate consequences for people who hurt others over and over again and who do not change. 
when we truly forgive someone, when we walk in the way of forgiveness, in the way of Jesus, when we truly forgive someone in the deepest places of our heart, it doesn't mean that we've ignored the problem or to pretend that what they did wasn't really a big deal. What it actually means is that we see and that we admit the hurt that they've done to us and we choose to not hold it against them. That we look at it and we see that hurt and pain for what it was and from a place of strength that only God can give to us, we say, I forgive you because I've been forgiven by Jesus. We've talked before about how forgiveness isn't the same thing as reconciliation, reestablishing relationship together. Reconciliation is an effort that takes two people who in goodwill are seeking to reconcile together. But forgiveness only requires you. It only requires one person. It requires you to be willing to admit that that person really hurt you, really caused you pain but that you are not going to hold that against them, that you are not going to repay evil for evil, that you are not going to take vengeance because vengeance belongs to the Lord. Forgiveness is the way that Jesus offers to us. That's not this exhausting way of taking on the responsibility of making other people pay for their sin. Forgiveness is the way of Jesus that offers us true peace, true shalom. It sets us free from the wrongs that other people have done to us. Second, the way of worship that leads to freedom. Cain and Gideon follow this pattern of worship that is half-hearted and divided. Cain brings whatever he can find among his crops and he offers it to God. We see in the story of Joshua that when Joshua won those victories for God, that he set up these altars and these memorial stones to make it clear to himself and to make it clear to the people of Israel who won this victory. But in Gideon's life, in his own double-mindedness, he leads people to bring sacrifices that cause them to forget God and to begin to worship idols. And so Jesus shows a different way. He teaches us that we cannot serve two masters— because we will either love one and we will hate the other. He tells us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. He told us that whoever is pure in heart, not divided, but pure in heart, are the ones who will see God. And in his own life, we see that he lived a life of undivided loyalty and commitment and worship to his Father. He offered all of his treasure all of his time, his gifts, his resources, his work, his attention, his obedience, he offered it all to his father and said, take it and do whatever you want to do with it. This kind of of worship leads to freedom because it it doesn't have anything to do with the circumstances that are going on around us. I was reminded this this week of the story of Paul and Silas, who've just experienced the worst kind of suffering that we can imagine, are being beaten and are put in prison in this dank, dark, wet prison And what are they doing? They're singing praises to God. Their circumstances did not keep them from worship. They had undivided worship. When we are divided, double-minded, we become slaves to the idols that have our hearts. Undivided, single-minded devotion, pure-hearted worship is what leads to true freedom. We see that in Jesus' life and in the life of Paul and Silas. And third is the way of life 
that leads to life. Cain's descendants end with Lamech. A life of pride and revenge leads to death. Gideon's life and family and everyone that he is leading are confused and as broken at the end of Gideon's life as they were at the beginning of his leadership. Cain's legacy and Gideon's legacy end with confusion and despair for the people around them. And maybe you know people like this. People who you look at their life or you have experienced uh, your relationship with them and they leave behind them this wake of broken relationships and hurt and division. And when we live our lives in anger or revenge, when we live our lives grasping for worldly success in the way that Gideon did, this is the kind of wake that we tend to leave behind us. But Jesus offers us a way of life, a way to live that leads to life, not only for us, but also for the people around us. For the people that we've been called to have influence on in one way or another. And you probably know people like this, people in your own life who, when you're around them, you have this sense that you've experienced the presence of God. You've experienced somebody who is walking with God. You walk away from those conversations and your those time with those people feeling more like yourself than you did before. This is the sort of life and influence that results when we're a people who live the way of Jesus, who are slow to anger and who are quick to forgive, who remember that vengeance belongs to God, who are people who pursue undivided, wholehearted devotion to God rather than pursuing our own pride and self-interest. And so this morning, I, I want to finish by just giving us some time of, of silence to pause and to ask where you need to be challenged in your own life with where you may be living more in line with the way of Cain in the way of Gideon than you are in the way of Jesus. I'm just going to give you a minute or two to be silent and to ask the Lord to show you, identify, to, to shed some light in your own life of where you are living your life more in the way of Cain than you are in the way of Jesus. Now I want to invite you to simply ask God, God, what do you want me to do? How do I turn away, repent from, turn around, walking towards this, on this way of Cain? And how do I step back into your way, into your pattern, into your path for me? Ask the Lord to show you what you need to do today, this week, to turn around, to take steps in the way of Jesus this week. I would just encourage you right now that if the Lord showed you anything, that you simply write it down on, on your bulletin. You can write it really small or in code so the person next to you can't see, whatever it may be. But if you just write that down, I think that is important for us to lodge that in our own minds and commit that. Let's write that down, and then I'm going to pray for us for God's help. Lord, we, we need your help. It is so easy for us to fall into Gideon's example, the way of Cain, of seeking revenge, of holding bitterness in our heart, or grasping on to worldly things before you. 
So, Lord, we, we ask that you would show us and, and lead us to walk in your way, and we need the help of your Spirit to do that. So we, we ask for your help today. Lord, for any of us here today who have wrote, written something down, God, I pray that you would give us the courage by your Spirit to act. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.